Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I do it. There, does that work now? <laughs> I'd like to invite everybody to come back and find your seat, grab your coffee or your tea. Wrap up those oh-so-interesting conversations. My name is Miriam Falks. I'm a member of the implementation team here at Jericho Ridge, along with Bailey Davies, Jared Crossley, and Brad Jarvis. And if you're wondering what an implementation team is and does, we're still in the process of figuring that out ourselves. Um, we were produced as a result of the September summit with Dr. Ken Thiessen as our church began to examine where we are currently and where we feel God calling us to be and began identifying some of the gaps that might exist between those two realities and creating lists of things that we want to do and address um, to make sure that we are um, deliberate and purposeful about uh, going in the direction that, that we're being called into. Positive change doesn't often just happen spontaneously, um, at least not in my life. Typically, it's the result of proactively um, pursuing um, something in a really deliberate and prayerful fashion. It's a lot of hard work. Um, and so the implementation team is um, uh, works at the direction of the Board of Elders, and our, our goal and our purpose is to be a very practical, hands-on team that produces documents and... Um, defines terms and values in ways that sort of bring things down from the vision 30,000 foot level to just a much more concrete and specific um, way that so that the things that are important to us we're sure are getting implemented into the culture of how we do life around here. So um, one example is communication. People have quite different needs and expectations and uh, ways of communicating. Um, so for some of you, listening to me speak would be much more effective than reading something or, you know, of course, visuals and documents and whatnot are, are you know, another way of communicating. We're trying to be very purposeful about how we communicate and make sure it's effective. That's something that the implementation team's been working hard on, is um, addressing some of that so that as much as possible, we can all be on the same page together and pulling in the same direction. So the uh, the... Elders, the staff, the ministry leaders, and the implementation team met again with Ken Thiessen um, for a weekend in January and did a lot of hard work. It was actually, it was quite a lot of fun. It was tiring, but it was a lot of fun. Um, there was a real strong, renewed sense of vision and purpose for our body. And for me, what was most beautiful was just a sense of unity. Um, that was quite amazing. I hope that those are some things that you may have experienced in the life of our church over the last several months. Um, just some of that enthusiasm and uh, yeah, just a renewed sense of where God's calling us to go. Um, but we got really specific in that weekend. So we had produced a who, what, when document that talks about, okay, these are the list of things we want to do. And um, who's going to do them? By what time? And what are those specific details? So for those of us who are on the implementation team and who are wired to be very practical and hands-on, this was the good stuff. This was really exciting. So um, I think previously we had shown or rolled out or made available that who, what, when document. I'm not sure if we have slides that show uh, where it's at now. So we've actually been able to start seeing some progress on um, in really uh, concrete ways on some of those tasks that we've set over the last goals. And um, Pastor Brad has created a great update for us coming out of that weekend Oh, yeah, there it is. There's a lot on there. There's some columns on there, too, that describe um, 
what's been ticked off and what hasn't, uh, what's been checked off. But Pastor Brad's made a great, um, written a great update, both from a vision perspective and also from a, um, a more practical perspective on where we're at right now um, and what came out of that weekend. And that's available at the Welcome Center in paper copy. It's available online for those of you who prefer that. I even thought maybe we should get a youth to like text it out to people who like it that way. It would take me a week to do that. Um, we're trying to appeal to, you know, as many people's different styles of communication as possible. So um, please make sure that you grab a copy, take the time to read through it, and um, engage. Engage in the process. Um, and to that end, uh, we wanted to do a brief Q&A before Brad comes and speaks this morning. So I'm going to invite Pastor Brad and Ron to join me. Ron is the moderator of our elders board, which is a fancy word for chairman, right? Yeah. yeah. So um, we just wanted to throw it open to you to ask questions about the process, make comments. Um, if you're an introvert like me and this setting like kind of freaks you out or um, if you need to read the update first before you have some comments, this is not your only opportunity to, um, to ask or to comment. Make sure you uh, tap somebody on the shoulder, a staff member, a, a me an elder, a member of the implementation team. We would be happy to talk to you because we're pretty excited about what's going on. So um, yeah, I'm gonna let Brad or Ron kind of throw it open, but if you have questions, Now's your chance. Oh, the pressure. Just while you're thinking of questions you may have, in case you don't know, and I, I can't imagine that you wouldn't, but in case you don't know, our elders team, if, just stand up if you could. David, there's David, there's Tyler, and there's Curtis, and myself. Uh, is Lauren here today? Lorne is not here today. Okay, so and there's Lorne and Kelly as well, so there's two more, but just so you know who we are and what we look like and who to tap on the shoulder if you have a question. Yeah. So this, this document represents a lot of time and a lot of hours for a lot of people. Uh, within this is uh, the I-team, if it just as a way of explanation. We've also got people working as particular ministry leaders. So if you have an area of, of the church that, you know, like children's ministry, well, we know that's Ruth Ellen in charge of that. But what about setup and coffee and all these things that's just sort of happen? All these chairs didn't get set up by, by accident. Someone had to deliberately say, we're going to go and get somebody lined up to do that. And I think Justin was here doing that uh, this morning. But there is a ministry leader, and that is uh, Sachi, who then handles making sure that there's somebody doing this. The idea is to make sure that Brad isn't the only one who knows what's going on, that everybody has their set roles. And within this, we're also creating job descriptions for each, each one of these ministry leaders. So if, you have, if you're in charge of a particular area, the big question for the person coming in is, okay, so what, what am I supposed to do? Now, we could tell you, and you could be very good at it, but what happens when you step down and maybe have to take a break, you know, you had a kid, you know, you got more kids at home, and somebody else has to do your job. Well, this is where we lack, or we have lacked, some documents to say, here's the job description. So these are things that are being worked on in the background that are hopefully helping things be a little more transferable from person to person as different volunteers step up and do different roles. Does that make sense? Okay. Anybody. I would say for sure the strength and sense of unity. Um, what a 
what a dramatic difference between when we gathered in September and when we gathered in January. Um, I came away from that weekend just like celebrating, just the feeling like um, the past is behind us and a new day has dawned and it's time for us to press in to what God has for us now. That's, that's pretty exciting. You know, it's been really exciting from, from my perspective is uh, uh, coming onto the elders board and, you know, I spoke with Al before that, and I said, so, Al, what can I expect is if, I'm, if I'm actually going to say, you know, yes to this? And he goes, it is one of the most rewarding experiences to work alongside with men that are like-minded and, and, and people that, that you can really sort of, you know, uh, get behind a, a purpose, and, and you're going to enjoy it so much. He says, I found it to be one of the most enriching things for me. And, Al, i got to tell you, you're right. You're right. I mean, I'm early in the game here. I get it. But... Uh, it is so right. When I sit around the table with, with uh, the other elders, it's a remarkable thing to be so unified in, in that purpose and, and have a clear goal ahead of you. Uh, and just the, just the level of, of maturity and wisdom that gets shared around the table, I feel like half the time I should just shut up and listen. You know, it's, just, it's, a, it's an amazing group of people. It really is. Yeah, I think um, in the update, I, I tip my hand in my heart uh, in terms of what I feel is important. So maybe read it. I, uh, not, to say, not to say that I don't want to, I could preach a big, long message on that, but read it. I, I think it'll be, yeah, a real... Yeah. I think, I mean, one of the things that one of the things that I really want for us is to really see a sense of um, people really. I'm encouraged to see people really rising up with the gifts that God has given to them, and really being able to then bless, release, affirm, strengthen, support, corral all of those gifts together into this wonderful, beautiful, messy thing called the church. And so I think people, I see people really coming with their gifts and saying, I want to offer these to whatever the Lord has for us in this season. Uh, and I just think we're, we're excited to do a better job of sort of putting and knitting those pieces together and then saying, let's do it. Let's go for it. Yeah. So it's going to be really encouraging time ahead for us, I think. Okay. All right. That's that. <laughs> We're going to turn it over to Brad, and I think you're, 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 uh, you're preaching this morning. You've got yeah. the headset. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks, Miriam. Thanks, Ron, for engaging uh, with that, and thanks to all of you for your participation and prayers in the process, too. That's uh, a lot of fun. All right, so we'll switch gears and uh, move into our teaching time this morning. And uh, we're looking at the book of Isaiah. And I think if we're to think about 
and summarize the book of Isaiah would say it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. Or at least I'm sure it felt like that to the prophet Isaiah. Because Isaiah got the privilege and the responsibility of serving four consecutive generations of kings of Judah. Trying to listen carefully to what it was that God was speaking and then to reflect that out in compassion, in judgment, in praise. And that was no easy task because these were no easy times for God's people. The king he served under, first King Uzziah, became king at the incredibly early age of 16. And yet King Uzziah was open to guidance, to the work and will of God in his heart and his kingdom. And so the scripture says that he was a rare thing. He was a good king. And things got complicated for him though because he contracted leprosy in his life. And so he was not able to rule for the full duration that he may have. And so he turned the kingdom over to his son Jotham, who was a pretty good king. He desired to follow God with his heart, but he also allowed stuff to happen in his kingdom that Isaiah repeatedly spoke to him about and said, you know what? You've got to get rid of some of this idolatry and this worship of other gods. And Jotham chose not to tear down the high places and shrines that people frequented to inquire of other gods except for the Lord. And eventually his divided heart was his downfall. But the worst of times happened after that under a king named Ahaz. And Ahaz was one of the worst kings that Judah had ever seen. Spiritually, ethically, I mean any measure. Politically, the man was anemic and paltry. When his kingdom was attacked, his first thought was, I know what I should do. I'll go to God's temple and I'll rip out everything gold and silver I can find and I'll find the biggest, baddest army of mercenaries I can and I will pay them off with all of that money and get them to protect me. And so he rips everything out of the temple he can find and uses it to pay the Assyrians off for protection money, which does not work out well for him in the end. But Ahaz, on top of that, just repeatedly is listed thing after thing he does to anger and bring God's judgment upon him and on his people. He does things like he takes his own children and he sacrifices them through the fire to appease idols. Ahaz is the worst king that Isaiah has had to sit through. And just when things are at their lowest moment, a young man becomes king named Hezekiah. And he becomes king at age 25, and he's the polar opposite of Ahaz. He follows the Lord with his whole heart, with his whole strength. In 2 Kings 18.5, it says of him, Hezekiah trusted the Lord God of Israel. There was no king like him among all of the kings of Judah, either before or after his time. So Isaiah, writing, has lived through the worst of times and lived through the best of times. Four generations of righteousness, rebellion, repentance, renewal. And that's what makes the book of Isaiah, I think, such an interesting book to read because it's all there. And it makes it relevant for us in our lives and in our world today. 66 chapters, 1,292 verses. The book of Isaiah is one of the longest scrolls in the Old Testament. That's why it's called a major prophet not because it's more important, but it's just longer than the minor prophets. But really, it might be most accurate to call Isaiah a pastoral prophet. Because he speaks so often 
with a real heart and real compassion and tenderness towards people, giving guidance as he relates God's heart, not only to kings, but also people. But Isaiah also, because he's lived through all of these horrendous things, he does not pull any punches. He has lived through and seen horrific wickedness in his day. And so he speaks it out. And there's very strong statements of judgment in the book of Isaiah. Because he's called to proclaim how far people have wandered from God's heart. And so the book is directed to people who have known both the best and worst of times in their own life and in their day. And they're in need of hope. They're in need of healing, in need of comfort, in need of guidance and direction, just like all of us are. And so the words of Isaiah ring out to God's people in tumultuous times like his or like ours that there is a new day dawning. And so here at Jericho, we're going to spend 10 weeks in the book of Isaiah exploring the major themes of the book. If you go through the book, just reading it start to finish, there's a lot of things that are repeated because God gets increasingly concerned about certain aspects of their character. So we're going to look at the different themes that we find, and we'll look at questions like, what are the consequences of rebellion against God? How long does God let stuff go on sometimes? How much sin can I get away with and still be okay with God, is one of the questions Isaiah brings up. What does genuine repentance look like versus putting on a show? Isaiah helps us understand some important but sometimes complicated biblical ideas like God's holiness. He talks about what heaven is like or God's grace and how God's grace and his justice fit together. So it's a fascinating book and there's lots in there. And and be reading ahead. I think you'll find a lot of very interesting but challenging questions to wrestle with along the way. We're going to begin this morning in chapter 1. And in verse 1, we're reminded of the fact that this is a series of prophetic visions that have come to Isaiah that God has given to him during the 8th century before Christ, during the reign of these four kings. And so I think it's helpful to clarify a little bit for us what the Bible means when it uses a word like prophecy or prophetic words or visitations. And especially when we use the word now to describe someone like Isaiah as a prophet, the prophet Isaiah. Sometimes when we think about the prophetic tradition, we sometimes use it to describe somebody who looks into the future and sees prognosticatingly about what's coming down the pipe, a predictive type elements. And certainly in Isaiah's ministry, there are elements of this. God gives him very specific visions of what Christ's birth will look like, Messiah's birth, eight centuries beforehand will look like, some of the specific works that Jesus will accomplish in God's purposes and plans for history. But the prophetic tradition, if you think about it just in terms of forecasting, doesn't do justice to the richness of it because there's elements that are very concerned with how to live in the day-to-day world that we inhabit. Oftentimes, the prophets issue corrective instructions. Sometimes they're situationally specific, so you have to pick through some of that. Isaiah will speak to different nations, for example, around Judah and Israel and say, this is God's heart for you as a nation. You better listen up. And other times he'll speak very tenderly and very specifically about issues that are significant in people's lives and in our lives and give 
forth wise and timeless counsel or wisdom for living. So it's fair to say that prophets do some foretelling, but a lot of it is forthtelling, speaking out, declaring God's word, his heart, encouraging people to embrace it. So as Isaiah looks around to the people in his day, the people of God in the world in which he lives, in chapter 1, he identifies a couple of significant issues right off the top. Actually, two issues and one solution for those issues. So turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 1 or on your devices. And I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. Some of the verses will appear up on the side screens, but I'd love for you to follow along with me. So Isaiah chapter 1 verse 1 says this, these are the visions that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. He saw these visions during the reigns that Uzziah, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah were kings of Judah. Listen, he begins, O heavens, pay attention, O earth. This is what the Lord says. The children I raised and cared for have rebelled against me. Even an ox knows its owner. And a donkey recognizes its master's care. But Israel doesn't know its master. And my people do not recognize my care for them. What a sinful nation they are. They've become loaded down with a burden of guilt. They're evil people, corrupt children. They've rejected the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. Why do you continue to invite punishment? Verse 5. Must you rebel forever? Your head is injured. Your heart is sick. You're battered from head to foot, covered with bruises, welts, infected wounds, without any soothing ointments or bandages. Your country lies in ruins. Your towns are burned. Foreigners plunder your fields before your very eyes and destroy everything they see. Beautiful Jerusalem stands abandoned like a watchman's shelter in a vineyard, like a lean-to in a cucumber field after the harvest, like a helpless city under siege. If the Lord of heaven's armies had not spared us, we would have been wiped out like Sodom and destroyed like Gomorrah. Strong words that Isaiah begins with. Because he needs to get the attention of people who are living in a state of rebellion. The first big issue that he mentions and brings up is heart rebellion. And he uses an image from the real world to communicate this spiritual truth. He says, listen, even animals know recognize loving affection and care when it is given to them. Even your pets know this. Even your livestock can recognize when someone cares for them. Even your pets have this sense of fidelity and loyalty to you. Okay, maybe not cats, but dogs definitely have it. But God's people have become so intent, Isaiah says, on pursuing evil, so corrupt They have rejected, despised, and turned their backs on him to the extent that they cannot even recognize his loving care when it's demonstrated to them. God's people have become so intent on pursuing evil. They have rejected and turned their backs on him. God has raised them, cared for them, provided a land for them to live in, given them a good land with food and shelter, a land to live in, and yet they live in such a way that God does not even exist. 
And Isaiah says, you want to know what this feels like? When you live in this way, that is like a child who continuously chooses to sin and intentionally rejects a loving parent. If you're going to live this way, continually choosing to willfully sin against God, that is like a child intentionally rejecting loving parents. A rejection of the deepest and most significant and intentional kind. A choice. A heart that's bent on hurting one who has poured love and compassion into your life. And some of you know that experience and the pain that that brings. And Isaiah and the prophets use all kinds of imagery to try and remind or get our attention to help us understand what God is trying to communicate. And I think if Isaiah was alive today, he might choose a different image, an image from the 90s. Remember in the 90s, we used to say, talk to the hand, right? Remember that expression? I can think of times in my own life where I've said intentionally to God, maybe you have too, talk to the hand, God, because the ears ain't listening. There have been times when I have wanted to do my own thing. I have chosen intentionally to pursue the temporary pleasures of sin for a season. And so when you do that, you say to God through your actions and maybe through your words as well, get out of my life. I do not want you around right now. Yet Isaiah reminds us in Isaiah 1.5 to be very wary of this because this is an invitation, he says, This kind of deep-seated rebellion is an invitation for punishment. Verse 28 of chapter 1, Isaiah says this, Rebels and sinners will be completely destroyed, and those who desert the Lord will be consumed. He said, it's like you have wounds that are just growing. The further and further you want to walk away from God, the infection is seeping deeper and deeper and deeper into your life. And it will kill you. And medical help is being provided and offered, but you're running around saying, it's merely a flesh wound. (laughs) Isaiah says, don't do it. Don't do it. Help is offered to you. It's as if you're living in a state where you know your debt is mounting higher and higher and higher due to reckless spending, but you just run away from sound financial advice, try to ignore it. We choose to continue to harbor anger in our hearts when someone in our life group invites us to open up and share with them, but we choose to run away, and we don't want to go there. Isaiah says, the longer you choose to live in places of intentional and willful sin, you'll become loaded down with a burden of guilt and shame. But here's where it gets really weird, or I should say it actually hits a little closer to home. Isaiah says, in the midst of this rebellion... While your hand is held up to God saying, stay away from me, you still put on your Sunday smiley face and go to church and sing and serve with the best of them. Look with me at what Isaiah says in verse 11. We're going to see a sharp distinction here emerge and a definition emerge of authentic versus inauthentic worship. Isaiah 111. God speaking says, What makes you think that I want all of your sacrifices? 
says the Lord. I am sick of your burnt offerings, of rams, the fat, of fattened cattle. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. These are the sacrifices that have been commanded from uh, the Mosaic and Deuteronomic laws. God says, when you come to worship me, who asked you to parade through my courts with all of your ceremony? Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. The incense of your offerings disgusts me. As for your celebrations of the new moon and the Sabbath, your special days that you set aside for fasting, they are all sinful and false. I want no more of your pious meetings. I hate your new moon celebrations and your annual festivals. They are a burden to me. I cannot stand them. When you lift up your hands in prayer, I will not look. Though you offer many prayers, I will not listen. For your hands are covered with the blood of innocent victims. See, Isaiah pulls no punches. It's raw and it's in your face. And he raises this second issue. He says, your hearts are in a state of rebellion. But while your heart is in a state of rebellion, you actually are still going through the motions and practicing hollow religion. You're, you're anticipating that by putting on an outward show of things looking really good still, sacrifices are still happening as per the laws of Moses. People are looking good when they come into the temple courts for worship. They're bringing money. Oh, things are, they're still offering plates full. They're declaring and observing days for fasting. Hands are lifted in praise and in prayer. But on the inside, Isaiah says, we have not addressed the root issue, and that is that your hearts are still living in a place of rebellion. And so you have this veneer, this pretend layer of piety that you put over top of that, and it's hiding this massive incongruity in your world. A pretend piety that's designed to convince others that your heart is not in a state of rebellion. And God says, you know what I think about all this? It's a load of crap. I don't want to see it anymore. I hate it. You're satisfied with the sheer quantity of worship? But God says, I look at the heart behind it and I find your lack of faith disturbing. See, we have a word for this in the English language now. We can thank the Greeks for this. It's the word hypocrisy. See, the word comes to us from the ancient Greek world of the theater. And in the world of the theater, as an actor fully immersed in your craft, you would take on a different persona, your character, when you step onto the stage. And that persona or that character that you played is not who you are in real life, but you play the part so effectively so as to draw the audience in so that they believe you are the character that you purport to be. And the Greeks called these actors hypocrites. And they wore masks to conceal their true identity so that people didn't know who they were in real life. But the divergence between who they really were in their real life and the persona that they played when they went on the stage and led others to believe came to be known as hypocrisy. 
And so this is what Isaiah is driving at. The same concept. He says, particularly when it comes to religious hypocrisy and these religious observances of worship, it's like you put on a mask and think that maybe you can fool others. And maybe you can. Maybe you're pretty good at it. But you cannot fool God. And so Isaiah is pointing out, particularly when it comes to religious observances, really any of us can fall into this temptation to put on a good show for God and others. To parade, as it says in Isaiah 1.12, across the stage with lots of pomp and ceremony. Making it look good. But behind the mask, behind the mask of your life, there's issues that are unattended to. And sins that are unrepented of. Hidden in a heart that's rebellious and still saying to God, I don't want you in that area of my life. And so, when you step further and further into that world of incongruity, and willful sin and transgression against God, but you still want to go through the motions, it's a completely kind of religion that rings completely hollow before God. See, these are the people who put on a suit and tie. Not here, we're not really into suits and ties here. Put on a suit and tie and go to church, but then who abuse their spouse verbally or physically. These are people who raise their hands in worship and song, but those same hands click through and find the explicit images that they know that they are looking for. These are people who sing beautiful harmonies vocally that impress those who sit in the rows around them, but who raise that exact same voice in gossip and bitterness on the car ride home. See, hypocrisy is not a new problem or an old problem. It's not even exclusively a religious problem. It's simply a human problem. Jesus bumps up to it in his day. He bumps up to it particularly when he engages in discussion with people who are very concerned with religious appearances. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus uses the illustration of a cup. And he says, you spend a lot of time focusing on making sure that the, out of the cup, outside of the cup looks really shiny and nice. But inside of the cup, It's dirty. It's full of two specific things he mentions, greed and self-indulgence. And Jesus says, you got to focus on cleaning the inside of the cup. And the interesting thing is if you clean the inside of the cup, the outside of the cup kind of gets clean in the process too. What Jesus is saying is hypocrisy is a heart problem. But religious hypocrisy is really tricky because it's kind of insidious and it's so sneaky and it's actually really easy to fall into. And so Isaiah just names it and says, listen, this kind of worship, this level of incongruity is worship that's driven by duty, not by devotion. You think you should come and do all of these things, but God's telling you he doesn't want that until you get your heart right. Cut it out. So this is the bad news section of Isaiah 
chapter 1. But thankfully, he lets us know not only the problems, but then he moves to say, you know what, there's a way to tend to these issues. And this is the third issue that he highlights. If we want to deal with heart rebellion, if we want to deal with hollow religiosity, we need to embrace holistic repentance. And holistic repentance means not just changing your mind, but also changing your behavior. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 to 18. Isaiah says this, the Lord says this through Isaiah, Wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight and give up your evil ways. Learn to do good. Seek justice, help the oppressed, defend the cause of orphans, fight for the rights of widows. Come now, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, I will make them white as wool. Incredible promise of true repentance. But what does true repentance look like? See, Isaiah has a very clear picture of it that he holds out for us. But for me, when I think about the words repentance, and maybe you do too, I think, okay, that means saying I'm sorry and being done with it. But Isaiah says, not so fast. That's a good start to repentance. But there's more to it than that. So verse 16, he does say, wash yourselves and be clean. So you need to admit, if you're going to wash yourself, you need to admit that you're dirty, which is hard for teenagers in particular to do. But wash yourself. So that's step one. So if you're not yet willing to admit to God that you're dirty and that your soul needs some scrubbing, then you're not yet ready for repentance. Your heart is not in a state, your heart's still in a state of rebellion or hollow religion. You've not moved to repentance yet. So you're pre-stage one. Admit that you need washing, cleansing. And this isn't just a one-time experience or event where you have that moment where you come to Jesus and say, God, by your grace, would you wash and cleanse me? I trust in the work that you have done, Jesus, the saving work that you have done on the cross. Would you cleanse me? That's the entrance point into God's family and a relationship with him and a vibrant one. But this cleansing, this washing, is something that needs to be ongoing in our lives where we continuously ask for and invite the Holy Spirit, like we talked about last weekend, to point out areas of our life that we need to repent of and from and move to a place of acknowledging that that is true and allowing the Holy Spirit to do His work in our lives. So that's all stage one, which is really hard work to do because it's so often that we need to do it. That's why here at Jericho, one of the things that we do is we celebrate communion regularly enough to remind ourselves of our need for repentance. The stage two of repentance comes up in Verse 17, the text says, learn to do good. So the focus is not only what we are being washed, cleansed, we're walking away from, but also that which we are embracing. We're learning something to do good. 
There's a counteraction or actions that I need to begin to practice, sometimes slowly, sometimes by God's grace immediately. So the question is, what practices do you have in your life if you want to walk away and practice repentance? What other practices do you have in your life that would allow you to fully embrace that desire for repentance and give it some traction? What are attitudes, actions that you need to learn and build into your life that will help you learn to do good? Maybe for you it's scripture intake. That's why we do our Project 345 reading plan at Jericho, to give you a tool to say, keep after Scripture intake. Let that be a place where God continues to speak to you day by day by day. Maybe it's an accountability friendship, someone who can call you out on issues in your life. Maybe it's a spiritual practice like silence, where you allow God to quiet your heart to the place you can actively hear the things that you need to hear Him speaking to you about. What are you learning? What are the practices that you have in your life that would help you learn to do good, not just not desire to do bad things? The next part of repentance, Isaiah says, needs to happen is seeking justice. And see, this is a definition of sin that we don't talk about a lot in North America because we're a very individualized society. So when we think about sin and repentance, we often think about, okay, how am I going to get right with Jesus, which is true and necessary and important. But in chapter 1 here of Isaiah, look at verse 21 and 23. Isaiah actually broadens his definition of sin and says, listen, you in civic leadership, you have a duty to guard and advance justice and righteousness, but instead you have allowed greed and self-interest to prevail. And the image that Isaiah uses here is a shocking one. He says, you want to do that? If you want to forget and overlook the needs of those who are vulnerable in your society, that's prostitution, he says. Because prostitution is degrading yourself with an individual personally. And you have allowed yourself to do this because you have failed to provide for those who are weak and those who are poor. When those who are in power fail to steward their power on behalf of the weak and protect the vulnerable in society, Isaiah names this as sin. And it's a bit easy for us to sit back and think, well, that would never happen, or I can't be responsible for what goes on in society. I have a hard enough time repenting of what goes on in my own heart. But friends, I think there's so many examples in our world that touch our world here that we would do well to think about. For example, Isaiah 1.17 says that justice means helping the oppressed, those on the margins. Friends, this is one of the core reasons why we send a team year after year to Guatemala. We feel that God has placed it in our hearts to be about the business of fighting for the rights and defending the rights of those who are displaced from their land, of those who are displaced from their homes and those who need a expression of God's heart of justice. See, in a society like Guatemala where approximately 20% of people are disabled physically in some way and are not able-bodied, they're marginalized. And so our calling, part of our working for justice is to come alongside of those people and say, we want to bless and affirm the things that God is doing in your life and gift you with mobility in the, per, in the wheelchair. Or build a home for you so that you can have security for your family. So when you give money to that, or when you pray for our Guatemala team, or when you go, 
you're on the part of God's side of working for justice and righting a wrong that he cares deeply about, the systemic. You're seeking justice and loving mercy, helping the oppressed and caring for the orphans and for those who are poor. Here I think also about our friend Vicky, who is visiting with us from Tanzania. And Vicky works together with Peter and the team from Under the Same Sun. And they work tirelessly for the cause of those who are orphans. And so I asked Vicky if she would just tell us a story because oftentimes you guys here pray for Tanzania and pray for the work that's going on there. And so Vicky, tell us a little bit of a story maybe of a way in which you and the team there are standing for justice and working on God's heart for those who are orphaned. Do you have a whole year? <laughs> <coughs> yeah, um, Brad gave me only two minutes. Uh, we have about uh, 320 students that uh, we sponsor in the various uh, education institutions. Most of these students, like 10, 90%, do not have, uh, well, they're raised by single parents. And uh, about 200 of them cannot go home, especially the youngest ones. And so uh, UTSS becomes their parents, their guardians. Uh, and because we took these children from uh, centers, uh, government centers uh, that were set uh, aside in order to protect persons with albinism who are fleeing atrocities in their villages. So they cannot go home. So the only time that uh, they feel loved, valued, and uh, uh, in a family... They feel that they belong to a family is when we go there during Christmas and uh, bring them some gifts, but also during summer camp. And there is one that is going to be organized this year, and Brad is on top of that. And so um, we have children, say, for example, like uh, Baraka. Baraka was attacked in 2000 and, uh, well, last year when he was only five. He's six now. He couldn't stay at home. And um, under the same sun, although closed new intakes for children with albinism, but we still take those ones who have been maimed. His hand was chopped off. And so uh, his father was also uh, involved in this, in this attack. And so he, his, he, w- he used to stay with the mother in the hospital and from the hospital to under the same sun. And we took this child to, uh, to Dar es Salaam, that is the capital, the commercial capital of Tanzania, in order to stay with us, but also to get him and other, uh, four, four other children to the United States to get um, prosthetic arms. So uh, in the process, we realized that Baraka has got other siblings. Uh, one is Shukuru with albinism, who is eight, And uh, she hadn't been to school, so we had to take her to in order to be with uh, Baraka in Dar es Salaam in a good school, in a boarding school. And uh, also, he has two other siblings who are younger, Lucia and Imani. So these children have gone uh, back with the mother in the village, but at least in more populated area. Uh, And... uh, 
there's nothing we can do for these children. The father is uh, in remand prison awaiting trial. And the mother now, because of trauma and what she went through, because when Baraka was attacked, uh, the mother also was attacked, uh, she has turned into, well, she gets uh, comfort in alcohol. So sometimes these children are left alone at home. And Baraka does not want to go home. There are so many kids like that that are under our care now. And um, our partners in faith uh, is the church uh, led by Pastor Mbuke. Uh, and um, most of the time, these uh, volunteers from the church would go to these schools where these uh, more than 200 children are and comfort them, bring them to church, and feel, uh, make them feel that they have a family. So this is the situation in Tanzania. I don't have more time. Thank you. <laughs> so if you're, thank you, Vicky, for sharing that with us. Um, you know, I'm struck by the fact that next time you think your kids are a handful, try looking after 200 functional orphans. Uh, this is the work that we're called to as a community of faith. I don't know why God puts these things in our path, but God has brought this into relationship and Jericho is sending a team there this summer uh, to do what Vicky said, to stand and love kids uh, in the name of Christ and on behalf of the church. And Meg and I are going to lead a pastor's conference to catalyze more churches like Pastor Mbuki's around this important mission. Because friends, we're called to love and care for the widow and the orphan. This is part of true religion. This is what James chapter 1, 27 says. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means this, caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. I mean, balancing those dimensions is a challenge. Trying to figure out how you care for widows and orphans can be challenging. Trying to figure out how you go about doing justice in the world is a significant discussion. But the social elements and the working out of justice in the community, not just in our own hearts, are important to God. And so it needs to be important to us as well. I love the way this, this cartoon puts it. If repentance were meant to be easy, there would be an app for it. This is why Isaiah is so clear in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 27. He says, those who repent, those who practice repentance, this active seeking of justice and learning to do good, he says they will be revived by righteousness. Again, repentance is not about just stopping what we are doing that's wrong. It's embracing doing something that's right. It's not about just leaving something behind, but embracing that which is good. And here we stand in a wonderful and deep tradition in Anabaptism that places an emphasis here, not on just what we say, what we profess, but on how we live it out. One of the very earliest Mennonite confessions was drafted in 1632 in the city of Dordrecht, Holland, and I'm more than willing to repent of my horrible butchery of the Dutch language. 
There's a photo uh, of the cover page of the first translation of English in 1727. And this was actually a confession that governed life for many groups of Anabaptist Mennonites, even up until recently. And the thing that I respect and want to incorporate in my own life from this rich tradition that we have is the emphasis on repentance being demonstrated in the real world. Listen to a section of this confession. It says this, We believe and confess that the first lesson of the precious New Testament of the Son of God is repentance and reformation of life. And that therefore those who have ears to hear and hearts to understand must bring forth genuine fruits of repentance. Reform their lives, believe the gospel, eschew evil and do good. Desist from unrighteousness, forsaking sin, putting off the old man or old person with his deeds, putting on the new person, the old new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. For neither baptism, supper, Lord's Supper, church, nor any other outward ceremony can without faith regeneration, change, or renewing of life avail anything to please God or to obtain of him any consolation or promise of salvation. There has to be fruit of repentance in your life. And so that's the question for today. Where's the fruit of repentance taking root in your life? We're going to move into a time of responding to God in worship and celebrating communion. And that's one of the reasons I think that the Apostle Paul, when he instituted this celebration for the church, invited us and engaged us in the process of self-examination because it's inappropriate and spiritually dangerous to come into places where we proclaim, yes, Jesus, I love you in a public way, and yet our heart and our life don't reflect that. Now, that's not to say that you have to be perfect to partake. None of us would ever get there or measure up, but that's the point of the cross, that Jesus lived the perfect life and invites you and I to embrace the forgiveness that is offered. And so the language of Isaiah 118 is so resonant here. Come, though your sins are as scarlet, I will make them white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, I'll make them white as wool. So don't rush to the communion table. Take time to examine your heart. Repent of anything that God would point out to you. Maybe you need to make a phone call or send an email. And the team's going to come and lead us. And then as they lead us in song, come to the table. It's a place of deep mercy and grace. And our prayer team will also be available. Dale will be available at this side. Katie will be available at the far side. We would love to pray for you now. Let me lead you in prayer. Merciful God, we have sinned in what we have thought, in what we have said in the wrong that we have done and in the good things that we have not done. We have sinned in ignorance. We have sinned in weakness. We have sinned through our own deliberate fault. And so we say we are truly sorry. We repent. We turn to you. Forgive us for our Savior Christ's sake. And renew our lives to the glory and for the glory of your name. Amen.